Hello and welcome to a special Tuesday bonus episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm one of the hosts of Mom and Dad are Fighting. You may have heard me talking about my upcoming book, How to Be a Family, on the podcast. You may have even thought, geez, this guy is really shameless about plugging that book. Well, I'll show you shameless on this very special episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting for September 17th, 2019, the How to Be a Family edition. The book is in stores today. It's a chronicle of the year our family spent traveling around the world to shake ourselves out of our East Coast parenting bubble. While we were gone, I was almost entirely off the podcast. So for longtime listeners and for those new ones wondering what this trip was all about, I've got a little extra podcast for you this week. We'll have our regular episode this coming Thursday, same as always, but I'm also offering a bonus. Today, we've got the beginning of the audiobook, courtesy of Hachette Audio, free on this podcast. That excerpt, which we'll start in a moment, is about 33 minutes long. When it's done, I'm very excited to welcome back beloved mom and dad are fighting hosts emeritus, Allison Benedict and Gabriel Roth, to talk about the book and ask me as many pointed questions as they want. So, audiobook excerpt, then discussion with Allison and Gabe. Please join us and enjoy a little taste of how to be a family in stores now. Hachette Audio presents How to Be a Family, the year I dragged my kids around the world to find a new way to be together. Written and read by Dan Coyce. Our own nostalgia is already here. The first of a series of autumn moods that will pile up, layer on layer, as she leaves her various younger selves behind. Brian Hall, Madeline's World. I just want four walls and adobe slats for my girls. Animal Collective. You're screwing up. I didn't go to Iceland expecting to meet the perfect family. It was February 2016, and I was there to write a magazine feature about the country's geothermally heated public swimming pools, a simple municipal investment that had helped make the people there among the most content in the world. But then, one sub-freezing night at Vesterbeier Log, an outdoor pool in Reykjavik, I scampered across the frigid deck and hopped into the steaming family pool with Henry Henryson and Regina Bjarnadotter and their children. Aelin and Emma splashed together while little Henry clung to his mom. My job as a magazine editor usually involves sitting in an office working on other people's stories, staring at my computer until my eyes cross. So this was not a typical day for me. But this was a typical evening for them, Henry and Regina told me. The whole family in the pool, a final swim before bedtime, pajamas at the ready in the dressing rooms. The ritual helps the kids go to sleep, I think, Henry said. The water calms them. This is a particularly Icelandic parenting strategy, I'd learned. I'd talked to many adults who could still summon the childhood memory of slipping their still warm bodies between cool sheets. Regina was the executive director of an NGO that built schools and waterworks in Sierra Leone, and also, sure, in addition, was a dead ringer for Jennifer Garner. Henry the Elder was a philosophy professor so handsome he seemed like a lost member of the Skarsgård family. The children were a, a mini Bowdoin catalog come to life. 
Aelin, 12, extremely mature with impeccable English. Emma, 7, cute and enthusiastic. Henry, 3, mischievous and charming. National Geographic had recently offered them a free cruise of Iceland's West Fjords in exchange for their giving a few lectures and mingling with Americans for a week. That is, the entire family had been certified by National Geographic as the kind of Icelandic natural wonder that tourists ought to experience. After swimming, the family invited me to dinner at the cafe across the street. Let me tell you a magical story, I said as we crunched through the snowy parking lot. The girls eagerly gathered near. Say you have a snowstorm here in Reykjavik, I continued. Their mother translated quietly for Emma. Perhaps almost a meter of snow. Yes, they said, nodding. This was a not unfamiliar scenario. It was snowing now, though only a dusting, the flakes flickering past the streetlights. So if there was that much snow here, I continued, would you go to school the next day? Aelin crinkled her brow. What does this mean? she asked. I mean, would they cancel school? Aelin laughed. A moment later, Emma laughed too, having either worked out the English or decided that if Aelin was laughing, she'd better join her. No, of course not, Aelin said. Well, I said, just before I came to Iceland, we had a storm like that in Virginia, where I live. And do you know how many days they canceled school for my kids? Aelin's eyes were wide. How many? Seven, I said. Their screams of disbelief echoed through the dark neighborhood. I think that is too many days, Emma said quite seriously. As the children chattered about this remarkable story, their parents took me aside. How do parents work? Regina asked me. How do you live? That was a good question. Even before the snowstorm, it had been a time of particular craziness in my house in Arlington, Virginia. My daughter Lyra, 10, and her little sister Harper, 8, were navigating more difficult schoolwork, more complicated friendships, and shifting personal identities. I was managing employees for the first time as the editor of a section of a magazine and finding it hard to balance the personalities and responsibilities involved. Alia, my wife, a First Amendment attorney, was working 18 hours a day on the toughest case of her career, one that she worried was going off the rails in a state court proceeding that seemed wildly unjust. The stress of both our jobs, the sense of the general out-of-controlness of things, was bleeding ever more regularly into our home life. One night, a few months before my trip to Iceland, I'd been walking down the hallway to my bedroom when I saw that Lyra's light was still on. As usual, after putting our daughters to bed, I'd spent several hours at the kitchen table chipping away at the infinite mountain of work, chugging Diet Coke, tweeting. Alia was holed up in the office downstairs writing a brief. It was 11 o'clock, much later than I would expect Lyra still to be awake. I peeked into her room to find her sprawled across her bed, staring at the ceiling. She turned to me as the door opened, her eyes wide. Hi, sweetie, I said. What's up? Why aren't you asleep? She made a desperate gesture of overcapacity around her head. I can't turn it all off, she cried. I knew the feeling. After rubbing Lyra's back and singing to her and turning out her light, I too lay in bed, staring at the ceiling. Had I finished all the work I needed to do? I remembered an email I'd intended to write, 
grabbed my phone off the bedside table, typed it, tapped send. Was Alia holding up? Could I be doing more to help her out? She was still downstairs. Did I remember to send in that form for Harper's school? When was the quarterly tax payment due? Ah, did I forget to buy toilet paper? Why were my eyelids twitching like that? Maybe the Diet Coke wasn't helping things. Then came the snowstorm. Two feet in one day, resulting in seven days of missed school, a second unscheduled Christmas vacation for our kids. But not for us. It was the kind of catastrophe for parents that wrecked weeks of planning and put us at the edge of panic every hour as we juggled the stuff we needed to get done with the task of keeping two bored girls occupied for the nearly two weeks they were stuck in the house. The snowstorm transformed me in my coworkers' eyes from a guy they could depend on into a guy who bailed on his responsibilities and disappointed them. We paid our wonderful babysitter, Alia's cousin, hundreds of extra dollars just so we could do distracted, not very good work during the day and then yell at our children after she left. This act of God seemed to serve as the perfect crucible to reveal how broken our family life was. Our household operated like the nation's air traffic network. We functioned but forever on the edge of catastrophe, knowing that one closed runway would set off a cascade of problems that would eventually overwhelm the system. When our children finally returned to school, we looked at the wreckage behind us and the future ahead of us. The all-hours working, the concern about whether Lyra and Harper were happy, healthy, learning the most, getting the best, the certainty that somehow, despite all the advantages we were lucky enough to possess and pass on to them, we were fundamentally living the wrong life. It seemed to me nearly every day that we were doing being a family wrong. My children had wonderful opportunities, full schedules, and enriching experiences. Yet working our days and nights away as we did, my wife and I rarely spent time with them, and the time I did spend with them often left us all anxious as I tried to connect through my own distraction and their complaints about screens they couldn't watch or shit I couldn't buy them. Of course, often they were loving and grateful and kind. But then I was so beside myself with annoyance and frustration that I didn't see it. Above all, our life as a family felt as though it was flying past in a blur of petty arguments, overworked days, exhausted nights, an inchoate longing for some kind of existence that made more sense. Our family wasn't broken or dysfunctional, but we were in an unhappy rut, one that seemed of our own making but was also tied to the busy, hyper-competent parenting culture that surrounded us in Arlington. We could have gone on as we were, And after 18 years, our kids would be... What? What would we be parenting them into? Two smart, kind women, I hoped. But also, blinkered people from the burbs. Unable to deal with adversity, without much of a sense of the world outside the path we'd cleared for them. As the co-host of a parenting podcast, I heard every day from listeners that the only thing that made them feel worse than the amount of time they spent away from their kids was the poor quality of the time they spent with them. The secret belief that, despite living in relative comfort and freedom, you're fundamentally screwing up parenting is the tie that binds pretty much all the parents I know. The friend who was so driven to distraction by her daughter's screen obsession that she posted pleas to Facebook begging for advice, and the other friends who just commented, 
God, I wish I knew. The podcast listener, who wrote in, infuriated by his children's ungratefulness, who wished his kids could see what the real world was like just once, how fortunate they were to live the lives they did. Once an old college friend told me, well, I hardly ever see them, but at least when I do, we drive each other crazy. Very little of the time I spent with my kids was quality time, which to me meant facing a challenge together, talking about the world together, enjoying one another's company in some kind of rewarding way. Like so many ideals, or even fantasies, of good parenting, this vision of what our time together should be invaded and darkened the time together we actually had. Sometimes, during my regular phone call to Alia while I walked to get lunch in downtown D.C., often the only conversation we would have until after kid bedtime, we both confessed how overwhelmed we felt, giving comfort to each other, but no solutions. There were no solutions. On afternoons that I needed to pick the girls up, I ducked out of conversations with coworkers and apologized for putting off my final tasks, but still, always ran late getting stuck in traffic or on a bulky metro train. I'll never forget the afternoon that, already behind schedule to get Harper at basketball practice, I pulled out of the garage, looked left, looked right, and then drove directly into a pedestrian in Chino's, knocking him over. What the fuck? he shouted, leaping to his feet. I'm sorry, I cried through the open window. It was my fault. I'm so sorry. He slammed the hood of our Honda. What the fuck is wrong with you? he yelled. Half a block later, I had to pull over because I couldn't see the road through the tears. So what could we do? Should I quit my job? Move us off the grid? Join a commune? Some kind of life upheaval seemed necessary to break us out of the trap we'd put our family in. But the shape and scope of such a change was beyond me. Settling at a table with the happy Henryson Bjarne daughters at a cafe across the street from the pool, I wondered if I'd been thinking too narrowly about my American family and our American life. I'd never even considered, for example, how swimming in a hot tub with my kids each night might change us. What if my general ignorance about the rest of the world wasn't just a symptom of our family malaise, but a cause? Other cultures raise their children in manners wholly alien to me. They organize their lives differently, value different qualities and their kids, measure success in different ways, or don't measure it at all. In the cafe, I asked Henry and Regina if they and their kids had spent much time overseas. And I learned that, thanks to both Regina's job and the family prioritization of travel, the children had been to more countries than I, a grown adult, ever had. Guyana, Panama, Grenada, Rwanda, the Netherlands, Turkey... I really love traveling, Halen said brightly. In fact, the family was considering moving to Sierra Leone for a year or so. Some people are going to think we're crazy, Henry admitted, but many of my friends are adventurous. I asked Aylin how she would feel about such a move. Well, I'm at a very difficult age, of course, she said, and I laughed out loud because the only young woman less awkward than clever poised Aelin Regina's daughter, was like Malala. She shrugged to acknowledge the absurdity of her statement and then continued, I'll miss my friends, but I'm excited for the trip. I think it will be amazing. I'd finished my beer and ordered another, 
despite the wary glances Henry and Regina kept giving each other. I told them about how my wife and I felt like we were grasping for some other, completely different way of life. I often wish something like that as well, Henry said. You do? I gawped. If I could choose one place for our family to live, it would be Holland, he added. I think Holland is the most successful country. Soon, beautiful Henry and Regina and Aelin and Emma and Henry climbed in their car to drive home. I walked across town to my hostel, the snow now coating my beard, mulling over everything I'd seen and heard. What if Ali and I took the leap so many parents dream of, ditched our overstuffed, incomprehensible lives, and went in search of a better way? We weren't perfect, like the Henry Bjarna daughters, but I liked our family. Ali and I had met on the first day of freshman year in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on a sand volleyball court outside our dorm. Our meet-cute was Alia telling me that just because I was a guy didn't mean I was allowed to stray out of position and steal plays that my female teammates could make just fine. We traveled in the same circle of friends, bonded over improv comedy and music, flirted through a psychology class, and finally, after an epic senior year road trip to Graceland, started dating. Within 12 months of graduation, we were engaged. It just seemed pointless, we thought, to wait to get married when it was evident to us and everyone we knew that we were right for each other. We were the first of our friends to get married. I was in grad school and she was in law school. Did we talk about children? I hope so, though I don't remember. Alia recalls me telling my mom on the phone about our engagement and assuring her that this girl did indeed want to have kids someday. We certainly weren't going to have them right away, though. We were so young. We'd both had pretty comfortable childhoods, each of us the less troublemaking sibling in a two-child family. I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. My parents' divorce when I was in eighth grade unsettled my adolescence, but it remained clear through my childhood that I was a priority in both my parents' lives. Alia was raised in a weird hippie neighborhood 45 minutes south of D.C. Her parents were quirky and loving and the exact level of strict yet kind that we later struggled to achieve in our own parenting. Our kids definitely don't have the healthy terror of disappointing us that Alia had of disappointing her mom. After getting married, we lived in Honolulu and then in New York City, where many of our college friends had also ended up. Alia worked for a big firm and then, as soon as she could, joined a small First Amendment boutique outfit, defending newspapers and magazines against libel suits and battling the government for access to public records. I made my way, eventually, to journalism, writing and editing about movies and books. We established traditions, had adventures, developed inside jokes. Feel free to ask me in person for the very, very long story behind why, whenever one of us drops something in the kitchen, the other one automatically says, you're screwing up. We'd adopted a dog in Hawaii and brought her with us to New York, where we doted on her, singing endless verses of a song of Alia's invention called Dora is a dog. Dora is a dog. She is not a frog. She is not a log. She doesn't drink eggnog. And so on. We referred to Dora to her face as our practice kid. So when we'd managed to keep her alive for five years, we decided time to have the actual kids. Alia went off birth control, came home one night from a court date in Buffalo, and announced, 
I'm pretty sure I'm ovulating. Nine months later, in 2005, Lyra was born. Lyra revealed herself early as someone who organized the events around her into narratives, inventing stories and questing to understand the motives behind people's actions and words. Harper, born two years later, viewed the structures and tasks the world required as delightful puzzles to solve, and she tirelessly practiced the things that seemed important to her. Walking, doing cartwheels, dribbling a basketball, baking cookies. Dora abdicated her firstborn position, bearing the countless indignities of a big dog's life with small children. Lyra's babysitter wanted Lyra to ride Dora like a horse. As a toddler, Harper spent quite a bit of time trying to stick her finger in Dora's butt. Those first years were nearly impossible, as they are for most parents, but we survived them by thinking of ourselves as a team. We had each other's backs. Espoo, Alia and I would whisper to each other, a sweet nothing we shared when some person outside our little circle disappointed us in some way. It was an acronym for Everyone Sucks But Us. We fled New York in 2009 and headed down to the D.C. suburbs. Our choice made sense even as we disappointed ourselves by giving up the bustle and diversity of the city for a placid house in Arlington. But we were exhausted from raising small kids and getting priced out of the city. Many of our friends were moving away, and Alia's parents lived close to our new home in Prince George's County, where Alia had grown up. They were A-plus grandparents, engaged, supportive, and minimally meddlesome, and we were desperate for help. And that's where we were, seven years later, in a brick ranch on a busy street, the proverbial worst house in a nice neighborhood. We'd refinance to expand the galley kitchen and build a porch, upon which I like to sit and watch baseball on summer nights. The girls had their own rooms next to our room and pined for an upstairs like their friends' big houses had. Dora, now 16 years old and retired, roamed the backyard pursuing her passion, squirrels. We didn't have a fancy coffee machine or a smart fridge, but we did install a soda fountain that pumped out Diet Coke like at McDonald's. After a number of lonely years, we'd finally assembled a group of close friends in Arlington, and I'd found a job at a magazine I loved. But in other ways, things were harder than ever. Alia's parents, facing sudden health problems, were about to move away. We felt less and less at home in a neighborhood becoming Manhattan-esque in its wealth. Alia was overworked and stressed out. And I, like Lyra, couldn't turn it all off. That night in Reykjavik, I called Alia as I walked home through the snow. Hold on, she said. Harper, please wait. I'm on the phone with Daddy. In the background, Harper, just home from school, was asking for more screen time. Did you get good stuff for the story? Alia asked me. Yeah, I said. But what I really wanted to talk to her about was the crazy idea we'd sometimes batted back and forth. A kind of parenting vision quest, a banana's dream to dump everything for a year and try out life somewhere far, far away. I think we should just do it, I said. I think we should, like, get the hell out of our parenting bubble. In the background of the phone call, I heard Lyra and Harper shouting at each other about some bullshit. I have to go, Alia said. I have to finish this brief and get them to not kill each other. So, you know. I'm in. If we could go somewhere else for an entire year, where would we go? 
a tropical paradise where we sat on the beach all day, the damn south of France, a new city that offered more family support, a more sane idea about balance. No single culture has completely solved these issues, of course. Even Henry Henryson dreams of someplace else. We wanted to find a place that would challenge the aspects of our parenting we already struggled with. So over the next few months, we researched, talked to friends, peered unhappily at our savings account balance. At night and bed, we discovered that when you're too tired for sex, you can get a pretty great endorphin rush just from hearing your partner speak aloud the name of a country you could maybe move to. Argentina, Alia would say, and I'd moan with delight. The more we spun out dreams of our 2017, the less able we were to find a single country that had everything we wanted. There were so many countries that could transform so many different parts of our family life. Surely we would never have this chance again, so couldn't we try a sample platter of global parenting? That's how we settled on four new homes. First, we'd take our slothful, screen-addicted kids and slothful, screen-addicted selves to New Zealand, a country whose parenting philosophy revolves around outdoor recreation and adventure. Then, we'd seek order in the Netherlands, the country where everything works and where the children are supposedly the happiest in the world. We'd search for a simpler, more beautiful life in Costa Rica, a country that prizes Pura Vida and whose population of native Ticos was swelling with American retirees and families looking for paradise on a budget. And to finish the year off, we'd return to America, but not to Arlington. Instead, we'd settle down in Hayes, Kansas, near the precise geographic center of the United States, joining old friends who'd fled the East Coast for a small town to learn whether what we'd been desperate for all along was a kind of smaller, more authentic American life, or if such a thing even existed anymore. We weren't presumptuous enough to imagine that we could parachute into a city for three months and truly understand all there was to know about it. We wouldn't magically become Dutch or Tico or Kansan. But we could model our family life after the lives we saw around us, practicing curiosity and open-mindedness, trying out ways of interacting we might never have thought of. And as a journalist, I could uncover a perspective bigger than what most families would experience by reporting and researching, interviewing other parents, educators, and academics. I had a whole list of questions I wanted to ask in each place. But for Alia and me, the question was simpler. Could the two of us set aside our relentless quest to make sure our children had every material and educational advantage and instead focus, for 12 months, on caring for all our hearts and souls. The more we talked about our plan, the more it seemed like a chance to substantially change our lives, to learn from other places and bring those lessons back home. Or bring them wherever. Perhaps we'd return to Arlington and stay, finding a way to live there sanely. But perhaps the experience would change our outlook so profoundly that going back to our lives in Arlington would be intolerable. Maybe we'd move to a small town or Central America or the other side of the world. Part of the shivery delight of dreaming of such a trip was dreaming of the entirely different life you might live on the other side of it. And maybe we'd need to completely change our life because it became clear pretty quickly that we might not have any money left when the trip was over. 
we'd drawn up a complicated year-long budget that was 50% incredibly specific well-researched numbers and 50% laughable guesses. How much do you think we would spend on Diet Coke per week in New Zealand? Our proposed budget was predicated not only on us economizing, convincing our bosses to let us work remotely, dipping into our savings, and maximizing credit card points, but also on the theory that I could get a publisher to pay me to write a book about our experiences, an assumption that seemed like both a tantalizing possibility and a truly bad idea. Should I write a book about my family? It's moot now. I wrote the book. Here it is. You heroically bought it or shamefully borrowed it from a friend, but Ali and I really discussed it a lot at the time. I dispensed pretty quickly with the principle that one's own family ought not to be fodder for public consumption. That ship had sailed years before when I started telling stories about my own bad parenting on a podcast. But there was the very real possibility that I would end up sounding like a total chode. What kind of chode? (laughs) There were so many. The self-congratulatory superdad who co-ops the domestic labor of women everywhere and wears it like a cape. The coastal elitist who thinks that he's got some right to weigh in on people living real lives in real places. Take your pick. Whatever kind of jerk you can think of, it's the kind of jerk I would definitely feel like at least once during our year's travels. The dream of chucking it all and starting a new life somewhere far away is one of the foundational fantasies of upper-middle-class parenting. Of course, there's a level of privilege in being able to worry that my extremely fortunate children are fortunate in the wrong ways. But one of the biggest failures I saw in my own parenting was that I hadn't managed to give my children a sense of their own advantage, that they were growing up incurious about the world and ignorant of their place in it. This is the exact issue that, unchecked, would lead them to thoughtlessly perpetuate that privilege throughout their adulthoods. I wanted to find a way of life for our family that involved truly connecting with the world around us as well as with one another. It was almost summer, and soon we had to decide whether or not we were going to do this thing. Alia had returned from a several-week-long trial in Florida. The news site she had been defending against a vindictive billionaire had lost its case and was on its way to dispiriting bankruptcy. She was exhausted from months of late nights and worried about the future of a country she saw turning against values she'd spent her career protecting. She was also pretty sure that Lyra had grown a couple of inches in the weeks she'd been gone. Lyra had hit puberty and, as Alia had as a child, was nearing her adult height at the age of 11. Alia and Lyra were dead ringers for each other, in fact, with Harper a smaller, more elfin collection of the same traits. Dark hair, dark eyes, brilliant smile, brows for days. As a parent, Alia's a snuggler and a nurturer, warm and funny. She's calmer than me, more likely to give an upset or angry child a sympathetic response, less likely to lose it. That means, though, that when she does yell, it really registers with them, unlike when I do. But she's also a worrier. In Peter Pan, J.M. Barry wrote movingly of mothers and the emotional caretaking they do for their children. It is the nightly custom of every good mother, after her children are asleep, to rummage in their minds and put things straight for next morning, repacking into their proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this 
and you would find it very interesting to watch her. It is quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you would pick this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if it were as nice as a kitten, hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on the top, beautifully aired, are spread out your prettier thoughts, ready for you to put on. It's a lovely metaphor, but Barry ignores, or leaves unspoken, the real effects on parents that this kinds of hands-on emotional effort can have. For, of course, this work, walking through experiences with children and highlighting the beauty of the world and helping them understand the bad things in life, doesn't actually happen when kids are asleep. Instead, it's a set of constant conversations, each of which has as much of an impact on the parent as it has on the child. As a mom, Alia is wonderful at offering the mixture of comfort, context, and sympathy such moments require. But all those discoveries that were not so sweet, I thought, rose to the top of her mind, leading her to occasional anxious nights talking and thinking about the kids. I'm sure my frequent unwillingness to admit what I'm similarly uncertain doesn't help things. We're the kind of couple who talk through even tiny decisions, looking for agreement. So, needless to say, this big decision was one we chewed over for hours, every day, in texts and emails and late-night conversations out on the porch. Ali had hung Christmas lights around the porch, giving the space a dorm room ambience that, I was convinced, encouraged crazy ideas. What should we do? I asked her one typically muggy Virginia night after the kids were in bed. We can economize and work while we travel, but we would definitely come back broke, or maybe seriously in debt. In our marriage, Alia is the more cautious one, more concerned about money, less likely to take a big personal or professional leap, which is why I was so struck by her response, struck the way our kids are when she shakes off her usual persona and hollers at them. Think of ourselves 20 years from now, Alia suggested. Would we say, oh gosh, good thing we didn't make a possibly foolish financial decision, or would we say, we had the chance to change our lives forever, and we didn't do it because we were $10,000 short? That hot night on the porch, each of us fortified by a glass of wine, we looked at each other and started laughing. We did it. We overturned our lives. We were screwing up, probably, but we wanted an adventure. We wanted our kids to see that there were other ways to live. We wanted to figure out how to be a family. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting, Dan's Book Tour Edition. I'm Allison Benedict, executive editor of Slate, and mom of Harry, who is 10, Sam, who is 8, and Wally, who is 6. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm the editorial director of Slate Podcast, and I'm the father of Eliza, who is now 8 years old, and Leo, who is 5. Welcome back, all-stars. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the author of How to Be a Family, which comes out today, September 17th. And I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14 now, and Harper, who's 12. Hi, guys. Hey. hey. Congratulations. This is awesome. So you have many titles, but today your title is author of a new book, which details a year in the life of the Coy Smiths, during which you, your wife, Alia Smith, and your two kids 
lived in four different places for three months each, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Costa Rica, and Hayes, Kansas, to try to figure out a better way to be. So what was wrong with the old way? (laughs) I had to deal with these people at Slate all the time, and it was very annoying. The trouble with the old way was in sort of classic upper middle class white person fashion. There was no trouble with the old way, right? Except for that we all still were arguing all the time and stressed out and upset. And we felt like we weren't really connecting, or at least I felt like I wasn't really connecting with the other people in my family who I ostensibly loved. Um, and I felt like my kids had no sense of themselves as citizens of the world. Like they were living in their little suburban bubble, the same little suburban bubble that I was living in. And they didn't really get a sense of what their privilege was or how lucky they were or how anyone else did anything. I mean, really even at their school, much less in the whole world. And it seemed like we were running out of time to give them some kind of sense of perspective or at least try to do that. And also we, you know, we were having a midlife crisis. You know how people have midlife crises and instead of buying a sports car or having an affair, we picked up and went on a trip for a year. I want to ask you a question that I want to frame in terms of internal Slate business that I will have to explain to listeners to this podcast who don't happen to work at Slate magazine. I think of you, ever since I arrived at Slate, it seemed like your role was like you do big projects and you make exciting things happen and like you don't cover one thing over and over. You're like, now you're doing this and now you're doing that and and lots of like wild things that wouldn't happen if you didn't happen to be working at Slate. That's what I thought your role at Slate was. And then when you announced that you were going to take your family around the world for a year, it made me realize, oh, that's what it's like being married to Dan Quinn. <laughs> like, How exhausting. You're married to the guy who is going to make some big thing happen. And like if you're going to go into that marriage, you probably like know the deal and you're probably on board with that. That's what you're signing up for. If you're going to be born into that family, you didn't sign anything. You know what I mean? No. You like that's that's you lucked out or or in whatever way. So I I wonder how your family feels before you even told them about this project. Like did they already know like well when this is your dad then something weird could happen at any time and we do big ambitious stuff that the rest of the families in my school don't always do. I think Alia knew that. I don't think she necessarily knew it when we got married. We got married very young. When we were still, I mean, we got married one year out of college. We were still like figuring out how just to like have a house and wash the dishes, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. We weren't, there wasn't really anything ambitious or that exciting um, going on. But since then, since we got married, sort of the big moments in our lives have been moments where we've taken big risks together. And I would note that it hasn't been like me pressuring Alia into these big risks for the most part, although I'm often the one who's like less concerned about the potential ramifications. But, you know, we, you know, after graduate school, we spent a year living in Hawaii because Alia on a whim applied for a clerkship there and got it. And so moments like that in our lives have been sort of signal moments. I don't think my kids had any sense of me being like that. I bet the fact that they didn't have any idea of me as being that kind of guy led in, at least in part to this dumb idea that like the only way that I really existed for them was as a guy who just like worked all the goddamn time 
And they didn't usually see the product of that work. Like they knew that I was a writer and an editor and they knew what Slate was and they knew I had a podcast and sometimes they would listen to it and get excited to hear their names. But like they didn't get a sense of that as being out of the ordinary in any way. And I feel certain that the stagnation I felt in my ability to make the kinds of big fun things happen at home that I could make happen at work because work offered like, you know, funding and a structure in order to make those things happen and work through the very lucky intervention of a bunch of good bosses gave me the freedom to do those things and was able to free me from the kind of like day-to-day rigmarole that other editors might have to deal with. But I didn't have that at home and my, my kids didn't see that. And I don't really think Alia saw that for a long, long time. And I'm sure that some like pent up frustration about that led at least in part to this. One thing I really loved about the book is that I went in wondering if I was going to be extremely jealous. And honestly, like, I don't think I was because (laughs) you're, I mean, you're very honest about how hard it was, right? Like it was hard. It was hard for the kids. It was hard for Lyra in particular. And I think it was hard for you, perhaps because the two of you have similar personalities, as you mentioned a bit in the book. But it was not like those viral videos when, like, the parents announce the family's going to Disney World, they're getting a dog, they're having a new, ba- a new baby, and everyone freaks out. Like, she was cautious to whiny, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a hard time in her life to be taken out of her comfort zone at school and thrown into different schools <laughs> every three months. And at one point, when you're in Delft in the Netherlands, and you're trying to learn about the Delft way of doing things or the Dutch way of doing things, which is like you can explain it and you can say the word that I don't remember anymore, but decision-making in the family in a bit more of a democratic way than probably any of us here do it. And you question whether you should have actually planned the trip that way, whether you should have looped the kids in from the beginning and I think gotten their buy-in. Do you wish you had done that? Do you think that would have made a difference? Yes, absolutely. So the thing you're referring to is um, called the Polder model and it's the it's not only the Dutch mode of parenting, it's like the Dutch mode of everything. It's how companies run in that in that country. It's how organizations run. It's how government decisions are usually made. It requires compromise and agreement on the part of all stakeholders in any decision from the people at the top of the organization to the people at the bottom of the organization. And it leads to Dutch organizations making often very cautious but very well-thought-out decisions that they then are very unlikely to change from. But it means that everyone in the organization has you know, has bought into this concept because they were all part of that decision-making. And that's the way Dutch parents parent their families too. Every family rule or edict or idea for what you should do is up to like a, an astounding amount of debate on the part of even like your three-year-old who is empowered to say, oh, I don't like that idea and instead I propose we do this and you – have to fucking take their three-year-old opinion seriously and like consider it. And I, as I mentioned in the book, hated that. Yet it became very clear to us that if we had done something like that with the trip, if instead of springing this on them as a kind of like quasi Disneyland surprise, we had instead talked to them throughout the whole process, told them this book might be happening, asked their opinions about where we might go tried to lead them to the decisions we wanted to them to make, obviously, but also to make them feel and and actually have some kind of stake in that, I think it would have been a million times better. 
would there have been no bad things? No, definitely not because uh, because I am stubborn and, and Lyra is stubborn and Harper is weird in her delightful weird way and uh, and we were together for a whole year and that's a long time to be together with anyone maybe especially people you love. And Wait, I just want to interrupt you for a second because it's a funny thing to say. Like, we're to, I'm together with my family all, all year and all, you know, <laughs> year after year, but yeah. this is a different kind of togetherness. Right. It's your, I mean, physically it's different in that it's, everyone is home almost all the time. The kids went to school, but as soon as they got, I mean, you know, we were essentially working from home every single day and Every three months, we were thrown into brand new situations where we literally knew no one and where we all had to sort of help each other figure out the lay of the land and build this new life. And so that caused this kind of very intense foxhole mentality in the family, which at times was great and at times led to just everyone sniping at each other. And then sort of in the in the like the deepest, darkest period of the trip when we were in beautiful Costa Rica – Stuck in a beautiful house on a beautiful beach, being bitten by mosquitoes, knowing no one with nothing to do. That was when it just felt like a hothouse. And so, yes, I think that if we had really talked through this with them and given them the chance to feel like this was a trip we were doing, not a thing we did to them, I think that that would have made a a big difference. But that ship has sailed until How to Be a Family 2 the adventure continues <laughs> on Disney Touchstone Pictures. So one of the things that comes from that situation where the four of you are like four times are in a completely new environment and not knowing anybody is that repeatedly for both the adults and the kids, you all have to make friends. And like that's one of the things, you know, kids who grow up in military families or other families where they travel around a lot, they wind up having to negotiate the process of making new friends like from scratch repeatedly. And now this is your family having to do that even at like quadruple speed to that. I wonder what you learned from doing that yourself, but also what you saw in your kids sort of having to do that over and over. In our kids, we saw that. Forcing them to do this, to make friends four times a year, basically crystallized and accentuated what we sort of already knew about their ability and desire to do that, which is to say Harper is a kid who, you know, people who listen to the podcast know is very social and very intent on making friends and very committed to it and pretty good at it as kids go. And so she in each place often ended up being kind of the whole family's entree into a bunch of other families and, uh, you know, for us, a bunch of other adult lives because everywhere we went, you know, in each of the countries we went to, often Harper was the first person who everyone in the neighborhood got to know. And so in New Zealand, Long before we met many of our neighbors, they had met Harper. She told them about the whole thing. And then we would run into them on the street and Harper would broker the introductions and we would then meet those people and hopefully become friends with them. And that continued throughout. With Lyra, it was, you know, the exact opposite because Lyra is is opposite Harper in that way. For Lyra, who already has a level of discomfort in making friends or in pursuing friendships, even with kids she's gone to school with for years and years and years – the idea of dropping into these places and putting forth the emotional effort 
to connect with people and risk embarrassment to invite them to things. She basically just flat out refused. And so the trip for her was a fairly solitary one in terms of people outside her family. It was, it was not solitary at all because she was with us 24 seven because she didn't go out and do things. But in terms of the people she met, it was very unusual for her to become tight with anyone on the trip. It only really happened with two or three people and only a little bit. And so it was illuminating to see that happen, but it was also hard for us to see that happen with Lyra in particular, to see that we had had this sort of fond vision that the trip would, by throwing her into these situations, would basically force her to do things which she otherwise might not have done. But it didn't really do that. Instead, she viewed asking her to like take the extra step and befriend someone because it would be good for her, it would be good for us, it would be good for dad's book. She was just like, no, I'm already doing this stupid thing for you, this whole year-long trip. I'm not going to also open myself up to embarrassment or humiliation or discomfort or anxiety by um, doing this thing that I just absolutely don't want to do. And so she spent a lot of this trip you know, on her own in a way that was not unfamiliar based on her life at home, but was like a bummer for us. You know, it wasn't just Lyra. Like one one really interesting thing in the book to me was that you were all still you. Like I actually wrote in the margins, there's like this line that you probably don't even remember. It's not like a pivotal line at all, but I underlined it uh, where you're sitting on the beach in Costa Rica and you say, I wanted to enjoy the moment sitting with my wife on a beautiful beach while my children played with adorable puppies, but I couldn't stop myself from feeling annoyed that it had been more than half an hour since we'd arrived at the place where we were to rent bikes and none of us yet had a rideable bike. And in the margins, I just wrote, you are still you. (laughs) Meaning like, no offense to you, Dan, but like everyone was still everyone the whole time. Like no matter where you go, no matter what the experience is, like you're still you. You have a short fuse or Lyra doesn't want to, you know, necessarily open herself up to you know strangers yeah and i wondered if that was in the end kind of is that was that suffocating to realize or freeing it was freeing in that it freed us from the totally naive assumption we had sort of half made at the beginning that 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 the trip would transform us right we sort of joked that it would transform us but also we sort of secretly thought it would transform us and that maybe I would come home and just be the kind of guy who can like sit on a beach and sell coconuts and not worry about shit, even though you know that that can happen. But like having a full year of seeing that it absolutely positively doesn't happen in the end, I think freed me from putting pressure on all of us to come back transformed or to have our life transformed. And instead it allowed us to do a little bit more of choosing the things from each of these different countries that we liked and that were useful and bringing back versions of them to experiment with and play with, you know, so not to come back being like, we're a family who always does the polder model, but instead to come back and think about the ways in which incorporating our kids as full members of this family instead of just like my royal subjects might be useful. Um, And so that in a way was freeing now, 
at the time, it often felt suffocating. And especially given that I put the onus on myself to like write a fucking book about this experience, <laughs> the book which would hopefully have some kind of takeaway to warrant people spending what you know some amount of money on it. Like that was a lot, and it was hard sometimes for me to get out of my head and uh, and not feel that pressure. Now it feels okay. There's a lot in the book about the difficulty of the experience that you guys had, and and we're talking some about the difficulty of the experience. And then there are also in the book, there are particular moments where I found myself envying you all because something magical was happening that doesn't happen to our families in their normal routines. And that may not have been like the whole plan was that we will go on this trip and what we'll get out of it will be these unique and particularly magical moments that will be surrounded by lots of extremely difficult stuff. But it, it feels like from the book that might be part of what you came away with. There's a moment when you're in New Zealand and you're going on a hike and the kids have finally like gotten into the idea of being on a hike and there's a local guy who says to them, hey, just be quiet for a second and listen to that. And they hear the like silence of being out in the middle of nature. You then try to replicate that moment with your other <laughs> kid and totally fail, which I thought was funny. Yeah, I have that scene in my head. And when I took my kids for a hike and I was able to successfully pull it off. So first of all, thank you for that. I got to have <laughs> that one moment with my kids where they appreciated the particular silence of, of the hike that we were on. But there's another moment on the beach in Costa Rica where you and I think it's Harper are, are looking at a sunset and, and agree. You don't have your phone and so you can't take a picture, but you agree that you're both going to remember it forever. I wonder if you do remember the sunset and if she remembers the sunset. And, and in a larger sense, I wonder if like those particular moments still feel like and the others like them in the book still feel like a presence in your family's life. Yes, absolutely. I actually asked Harper about that sunset recently and she does. She remembers that moment. She remembers saying she's going to remember that moment. And all of those sort of incandescent little bursts of happiness in that year are the things now that stick with us. I think all of us. I think even Lyra. And that is like so unbelievably gratifying and uh, and such a joy. And And so as I was writing – that is why I ended up thinking so much toward the end of the book about the way that the stories and experiences, like the joint stories, the stories of our family that we have created, keep now getting retold and rethought about and chewed over and joked about, and they become part of our history. And I now sort of think of the trip as like my version of what Alia and other women have told me that childbirth is like, where you know, six months later, you basically forget about the pain. You just remember the really great part. I now sort of think of the trip that way. Like, I don't really anymore, when I think about it, fixate on the times I was unhappy or the times my kids were unhappy or the fights or whatever. It's those moments that shine out and that we keep talking about and retelling and that make me feel like the thing that I got out of it and that I hope that other people get out of it is that if you can go on some kind of crazy adventure with your family, it doesn't have to be a, a this something this stupid. But if you go on something with your family, something where you're depending on each other in an unfamiliar place for some extended-ish period of time, you get that gift. You get, and you give that gift to each other. And those are the things that will stay with you and that are a common language that you then speak forever. 
one takeaway was that when you felt part of a community, that is that's when it felt best. So in New Zealand, it seemed like you felt that way. And then also in Kansas, um, which I guess is it makes sense. Everyone likes to be known. It feels good to be known. I think you write in the book like you couldn't tell if that was because you just like to be a big shot. But I don't think so. I love that feeling, that small town feeling of like people knowing me and um, feeling part of something. Yeah, is that you've something really that you cultivated that in New Jersey? Like that seems to be what I need it. Actually, yeah. I require that as part of my life. Um, I came to realize, and I had it in Brooklyn too. Like that was one of the things that was hardest about leaving. It wasn't the big city. It was actually like the small town that we had created. Did you go back to Arlington and kind of uh, commit yourself to that more? Maybe you already had that there, and it wasn't. It wasn't hard to quickly rebuild it no we really did i mean we had it a little we had a couple of close friends that we tried to see you know sometimes but i would say the biggest thing that has changed about our life in coming back to arlington is that we are like dogged plan makers and friend inviters over and we just are like ignoring the times where we get upset or unhappy because people don't reciprocate and we just try and do things with people and foster those relationships and do things in the community and participate in service and and just try and be as involved as possible. I mean, to the extent of me like going to like Arlington City planning meetings and shit like that that I never thought I would be square enough to do. But like that, yes, that that changed a lot of how we behave. And in part because of the experience of the trip and in part because the way that our friends our Arlington friends greeted us and welcomed us when we came back and how warmly they treated us and how grateful we were for that after a year away. That has been probably the most life-changing part of our return. And yeah, I need that too. That that was a real lesson. Alia and I both, I think, have to have that around us to really feel happy. We're very lucky that we came back to a place where we where that could happen. Okay, just a final round of questions. Gabe, I'm wondering when you read this, if there was something that you took from it that you were like, I'm going to I want to do this with my family, whether it's like a outing or just a habit that I totally successfully got them to shut up on a hike. And, yeah. <laughs> and it was amazing. I mean, I, I, I should say, like, we, we were on vacation in uh, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. I should say I read this book a year ago uh, for the first time. And so the kids were little like Leo was just four. And, you know, you're not a big hiker when you're four, unless you're in New Zealand, I have learned when you were hiking miles and miles if you're four. And we walked through the woods and, and got to a lake and they were excited to see the lake. They'd never seen anything like that. But getting to suggest that they like, okay, stop and listen. And this doesn't sound like what you're used to or like anything, you know, they're city kids. This doesn't sound like anything that you've experienced in your life before. That was a great, great, great moment. And um, I, I will continue to do that and probably not have as much success as I did that time. For me, well, I mean, I just finished this book because I'm a horrible procrastinator. But the thing that I loved was the biking and the no helmets. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to take the no helmets because we'll be like, you know, thrown out of town. But I want to bike everywhere. And I've always had that dream, actually. Like, even in Brooklyn, I used to, like, dream that we would, at, at the end of the day, we would come home from work and we'd all just bike together around the Circle in Prospect Park, which we never did once because John would never do that, I think. But that's what I want in life. I mean, we sometimes take bike rides, but no one's into it. Like, I'm the one who always motivates it. But yeah. I feel like you you pushed. I mean, it was different because you were in a place where that's where yeah, that's I how everyone got I, around. But you pushed through it, right? Like, right. They, they weren't super into it. They weren't. Su- I, they, I mean, Harper, who's super into everything, was super into it. But no, Lyra wasn't. 
But yes, the combination of how easy it was to do it there and how safe you understood you were once you understood that everyone was going to follow the rules definitely helped. Also, it helped that it's fucking flat. But I don't think it's impossible, even in a hilly place, as they get a little older, for you to not just go on bike rides, but like to bike to a destination. Like Right. That's what I want. Yeah. That's what I mean. Right. Yeah. So like wherever you guys are going to go to someone's soccer game or baseball game or to the restaurant where you're going for dinner, like just fucking bike it sometime. Make John do it. Okay. Final thing, instead of doing recommendations like we normally do, Dan Coyce, can you please recommend one to three things that were you to meet another family who was going to do something crazy like this, you would tell them they absolutely needed to purchase in advance to have on the trip with them? I have three things. This is a great Great. question. Uh, Okay. The first thing is waterproof raincoats for everyone. Uh, Aren't all raincoats waterproof? No. Plenty of raincoats are just like... Like a Macintosh. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't have to be like a full rubber Macintosh, but or it can be like you a, want a, like a slicker. Yeah, or like a <laughs> really good a hiking yeah. raincoat that is like not just water re- resistant, but fully waterproof. So you can be out in the rain in it for an hour and you just, your body doesn't get wet. It doesn't matter. I mean, we just got to eventually the point where we just would always have our raincoats in a backpack that someone was carrying. We wouldn't pack them away. We wouldn't leave them in the house. And we were in a lot of really rainy places. We were in the Netherlands, which where it rains all the fucking time. And we were in Wellington, New Zealand in a summer where it like rained and was 55 degrees every day. And then we were in the fucking rainy season in Costa Rica. And so we found that the number of disasters that were averted simply because When it started raining, we could pull out totally waterproof raincoats and put them on all four of us is astronomical. So that's number one. Okay, great. That's one. Number two, cards. Uh, I write about this in the book, but this trip, this year on the trip uh, was when our family became a card-playing family and we played a million different card games with our kids. We played them on trains and on the porch in Costa Rica and on planes and we just played them all over the place and they were – a great thing that we now continue to do together, all of us. Lyra even has favorite card games that she will play with a family. And so cards are like the thing you need to kill 15 minutes at any given time. And if you're really lucky, you'll get a Times Magazine piece out of it. Yeah, that is, I mean, obviously that's the dream. And then finally, this is a way more mercenary and much less heartwarming. But you, in fact, a year before you do any trip like this, you should get an an airline miles credit card or some other kind of points card and you should charge every fucking thing you can charge on it so that you can pay for some of the trip with that. There were a number of strings we pulled and tricks we pulled off and debt we went into in order to afford this trip, but we absolutely could not have done it if we had not spent the full year before the trip paying all our bills and buying everything we bought on the same points credit card because we used those points to buy what would have otherwise been the most expensive airline tickets we ever bought in our life from New Zealand to Dubai to the Netherlands, a 24-hour trip, uh, and we paid for it all with points because otherwise it would have cost us like $7,000. Okay, those are all great tips. This was super fun. Thank you for doing this, Gabe. Thank you for doing this, Dan. Thank you for reading the book. (laughs) We love the book. We're very proud of you. Uh, listeners, please check out How to Be a Family by Dan Coyce at your local bookseller or Amazon.com. It's a great book, and you should read it. How to yeah. Be a Family by Dan Coyce. Get it now.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.